Chapter 8 of the Social History of Smoking. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Social History of Smoking by G. L. Apperson. Chapter 8 Smoking Unfashionable Continued Later Georgian Days. Says the pipe to the snuff-box, I can't understand what the ladies and gentlemen see in your face, that you are in fashion all over the land, and I am so much fallen into disgrace. William Cowper, from a letter to the Reverend John Newton, May 28, 1782. Smoking has gone out, said Johnson, in talk at St. Andrews, one day in 1773. To be sure, he continued, it is a shocking thing, blowing smoke out of our mouths into other people's mouths, eyes, and noses, and having the same thing done to us, yet I cannot account why a thing which requires so little exertion, and yet preserves the mind from total vacuity, should have gone out. Johnson did not trouble himself to think of how much the vagaries of fashion account for stranger vicissitudes in manners and customs than the rise and fall of the smoking habit nor did he probably foresee how slowly but surely the taste for smoking, even in the circles most influenced by fashion, would revive. Boswell tells us that although the sage himself never smoked, yet he had a high opinion of the practice as a sedative influence, and Hawkins heard him say on one occasion that insanity had grown more frequent since smoking had gone out of fashion, which shows that even Johnson could fall a victim to the post-hoc prompter hoc fallacy. More than one writer of recent days has absurdly misrepresented Johnson as a smoker. The author of a book on tobacco, published a few years ago, wrote, Dr. Johnson smoked like a furnace, a grotesquely untrue statement, and all his friends, Goldsmith, Reynolds, Garrick, were his companions in tobacco worship. Reynolds, we know, when they talked of their Raphaels, Correggios, and stuff, he shifted his trumpet and only took snuff. Johnson and all his company took snuff, as every one in the fashionable world and a great many others outside that charmed circle did. But Johnson did not smoke, and I doubt whether any of the others did. There is ample evidence, apart from Johnson's dictum, that in the latter part of the eighteenth century smoking had gone out, in Mrs. Clemenson's Passages from the Diaries of Mrs. Libby Powis, we hear of a bundle of papers at Hardwick House, near Whitchurch, Oxen, which bears the unvarnished title, Dick's Debts. This Dick was a Captain Richard Powis, who had a commission in the guards, and died at the early age of twenty-six in the year 1768. This list of debts, it appears, gives the most complete catalogue of the expenses of a dandy of the court of George the Second, consisting chiefly of swords, buckles, lace, valenciennes, and point d'espan, gold and amber-headed canes, tavern bills, and chair hire. But in all the ample detail of Captain Powis's list of extravagances, there is nothing directly or indirectly related to smoking. The bows of the time did not smoke. In the whole sixteen volumes of Walpole's correspondence, as so admirably edited by Mrs. Toynbee, there is scarcely a mention of tobacco, and the same may be said of other collections of letters of the same period, the Selwyn letters, the Delaney's correspondence, and so on, 
neither walpole nor any member of the world in which he lived would appear to have smoked in miss burney's evelina seventeen seventy eight from the beginning to the end of the book there is no mention whatever of tobacco or of smoking apparently the vulgar branktons were not vulgar enough to smoke such use of tobacco was considered low and was confined to the classes of society indicated in the preceding chapter one of the characters in macklin's love c la mode seventeen sixty is described as dull dull as an alderman after six pounds of turtle four bottles of port and twelve pipes of tobacco a satirical print by rowlandson contains a man of fashion's journal dated may one eighteen o two the man of fashion rides and drinks goes to the play gambles and bets but his journal contains no reference to smoking rowlandson himself smoked and so did his brother caricaturist gilray angelo says that they would sometimes meet at such resorts of the low as the bell the coal hole or the coach and horses and would enter into the common chat of the room smoke and drink together and then sometimes early sometimes late shake hands at the door look up at the stars say it is a pretty night and depart one for the adelphi the other to st james street each to his bachelor's bed but outside the fashionable world pipes were still in full blast and in many places of resort the atmosphere was as beclouded with tobacco smoke as in earlier days grossly in his tour to london seventeen sixty five says that there were regular clubs which were held in coffee-houses and taverns at fixed days and hours when wine beer tea pipes and tobacco were helped to amuse the company angelo gives some lively pictures of scenes of this kind in the london of about seventeen eighty the turk's head in gerard street was the meeting-place for a knot of worthies principally sons of st luke or the children of thespis and mostly votaries of bacchus as the old fencing-master who loved a little fine writing describes them and here they sat he says taking their punch and smoking the prevailing custom of the time about the same time circa seventeen ninety an evening resort for purposes mostly vicious was the famous dog and duck in st george's fields the long room says angelo if i may depend on my memory was on the ground floor and all the benches were filled with motley groups eating drinking and smoking angelo also mentions the picnic society a celebrated resort of fashion at the beginning of the nineteenth century where the odor of tobacco never penetrated it afforded he says in his fine way a sort of antipedal contrast to those smoking tavern clubs of the old city of trinobantes the same writer speaks of a certain monsieur Livez, whom he met in paris in seventeen seventy two who had been one of the first dancers at the italian opera house and maitre de ballet at drury lane theatre this gentleman was addicted to self-indulgence loved good eating and good and ample drinking and moreover kept late hours a l'anglaise smoked his pipe and drank oceans of punch coleridge in the biographica literaria gives an amusing account of his own experience of an attempt to smoke in company with a party of tradesmen in seventeen ninety five he was travelling about the country endeavouring to secure subscriptions to the periodical publication he had started called the watchman at birmingham one day he dined with a worthy tradesman who after dinner importuned him to smoke a pipe with him 
and two or three other illuminati of the same rank the remainder of the moving story must be told in coleridge's own words i objected he says both because i was engaged to spend the evening with a minister and his friends and because i had never smoked except once or twice in my lifetime and then it was herb tobacco mixed with orinoco on the assurance however that the tobacco was equally mild and seeing too that it was of a yellow color not forgetting the lamentable difficulty i have always experienced in saying no and in abstaining from what the people about me were doing i took half a pipe filling the lower half of the bowl with salt i was soon however compelled to resign it in consequence of a giddiness and distressful feeling in my eyes which as i had drunk but a single glass of ale must i knew have been the effect of the tobacco soon after deeming myself recovered i sallied forth to my engagement but the walk and the fresh air brought on all the symptoms again and i had scarcely entered the minister's drawing-room and i opened a small packet of letters which he had received from bristol for me ere i sank back on the sofa in a sort of swoon rather than sleep fortunately i had found just time enough to inform him of the confused state of my feelings and of the occasion for here and thus i lay my face like a wall that is whitewashing deathly pale and with the cold drops of perspiration running down it from my forehead while one after the other there dropped in the different gentlemen who had been invited to meet and spend the evening with me to the number of from fifteen to twenty as the poison of tobacco acts but for a short time i at length awoke from insensibility and looked round on the party my eyes dazzled by the candles which had been lighted in the interim by way of relieving my embarrassment one of the gentlemen began the conversation with have you seen a paper to-day mr coleridge sir i replied rubbing my eyes i am far from convinced that a christian is permitted to read either newspapers or any other works of merely political and temporary interest this remark so ludicrously in opposite to or rather incongruous with the purpose for which i was known to have visited birmingham and to assist me in which they were all met produced an involuntary and general burst of laughter and seldom indeed have i passed so many delightful hours as i enjoyed in that room from the moment of that laugh till an early hour the next morning all's well that ends well but one cannot help wondering what kind of tobacco it was that the birmingham tradesmen used a half pipeful of which had such a deadly effect but perhaps the effect was due to the salt not to the tobacco in the year after that which witnessed coleridge's adventure i e in seventeen ninety six a tobacco-box with a history was the subject of a legal decision this box made from common horn and small enough to be carried in the pocket was bought for fourpence by an overseer of the poor in the time of queen anne and was presented by him in seventeen thirteen to the society of past overseers of the parish of st margaret westminster in seventeen twenty the society in memory of the donor ornamented the lid with a silver rim and at intervals thereafter additions were made to an extraordinary extent to the box and its casings hogarth engraved within the lid in seventeen forty six a bust of the victor of culloden gradually the horn box was enshrined within one case after another usually silver lined with velvet each case bearing inscribed plates commemorating persons or events a past overseer who detained the box in seventeen ninety three had to give it back after three years of litigation a case of octagon shape records the triumph of justice 
and lord chancellor lobro pronouncing his decree for the restitution of the box on march five seventeen ninety six in later days many and various additions have been made to the many coverings of the box recording public events of interest notwithstanding the unfashionableness of tobacco there were still some noteworthy smokers to be found among the clergy dr sumner headmaster of harrow who died in seventeen seventy one was devoted to his pipe the greatest of clerical tobacconists of late eighteenth century and early nineteenth century date was the once famous dr parr it is from him that dr sumner learned to smoke when he and parr got together sumner was in the habit of refilling his pipe again and again in such a way as to be unobserved at the same time begging parr not to depart till he had finished his pipe in order that he might detain him we are told in the evening as long as possible parr was not a model smoker he was brutally overbearing towards other folk and would accept no invitation except on the understanding that he might smoke when and where he liked it was his invariable practice wherever he might be visiting to smoke a pipe as soon as he had got out of bed his biographer says the ladies were obliged to bear his tobacco or to give up his company and at hatton seventeen eighty six to eighteen twenty five now and then he was the tyrant of the fireside parr was capable of smoking twenty pipes in an evening and described himself as rolling volcanic fumes of tobacco to the ceiling while he worked at his desk at a dinner which was given at trinity college cambridge to the duke of gloucester as chancellor of the university when the cloth was removed parr at once started his pipe and began says one who was present blowing a cloud into the faces of his neighbors much to their annoyance and causing royalty to sneeze by the stimulating stench of mundungus it is surprising that people were willing to put up with such bad manners as parr was accustomed to exhibit but his reputation was then great and he traded upon it parr is said on one occasion to have called for a pipe after taking a meal at a coaching inn called the bush at bristol when the waiter told him that smoking was not allowed at the bush parr persisted but the authorities at the inn were firm in their refusal to allow anything so vulgar as smoking on their premises whereupon parr is said to have exclaimed why man i've smoked in the dining-room of every nobleman in england the duchess of devonshire said i could smoke in every room of her house but her dressing-room and here in this dirty public-house of bristol you forbid smoking amazing bring me my bill the learned doctor exaggerated no doubt as regards the facilities given him for smoking for it was his overbearing way not to ask for leave to smoke but to smoke wherever he went whether invited to do so or not but the story shows the prejudice against smoking which was found in many places as a result of the attitude of the fashionable world towards tobacco johnstone parr's biographer referring to his hero's failure to obtain preferment to the episcopal bench about the year eighteen o four says his pipe might be deemed in these fantastic days a degradation at the table of the palace or the castle but his noble hospitality combined with his habits of sobriety whether tobacco fumigated his table or not would have filled his hall with the learned and the good a portrait of parr hangs in the combination room in st john's cambridge originally it represented him faithfully with a long clay between hand and mouth but for some unknown reason the pipe has been painted out a famous crony of parr's the learned porson 
was another devotee of tobacco. In November 1789, Parr wrote to Dr. Burney, The books may be consulted, and Porson shall do it, and he will do it. I know his price when he bargains with me, two bottles instead of one, six pipes instead of two, burgundy instead of claret, liberty to sit till five in the morning instead of sneaking into bed at one. These are his terms. And these few lines, it may be added, give a graphic picture of Porson. According to Maltby, Porson once remarked that when smoking began to go out of fashion, learning began to go out of fashion also, which shows what nonsense a learned man could talk. Another famous parson, the Reverend John Newton, was a smoker, and so was Cowper's other clerical friend, that learned and able dissenter, the Reverend William Bull, whose whole mien and bearing were so dignified that on two occasions he was mistaken for a bishop. Cowper appreciated snuff, but he did not care for smoking, and when he wrote to Unwin, describing his new-made friend in terms of admiration, he concluded, Such a man is Mr. Bull, but he smokes tobacco. Nothing is perfection. Nihil est ab omni parte beatum. Bull, however, was not excessive in his smoking, for his daily allowance was but three pipes. In his garden at Newport Pagnell, Bull showed Cowper a nook in which he had placed a bench where he said he found it very refreshing to smoke his pipe and meditate. Here he sits, wrote Cowper, with his back against one brick wall and his nose against another, which must, you know, be very refreshing and greatly assist meditation. Cowper's aversion from tobacco could not have been very strong, for he encouraged his friend to smoke in the famous summer-house at Olney, which was the poet's outdoor study. Bull smoked Orinoco tobacco, which he carried in one of the tobacco boxes, which in those days were much more commonly used than pouches, and this box on one occasion he accidentally left behind him at Olney. Cowper returned it to him with the well-known rhymed epistle dated June twenty-second, 1782, and beginning, If reading verse be your delight, tis mine as much or more to write. But what we would, so weak as man, lies oft remote from what we can. He describes the box and its contents in lines which show not only tolerance but appreciation of tobacco, from which it is not unreasonable to infer that Cowper's first view of his friend's smoking habit as a drawback, as shown in his letter to Unwin, quoted above, had been modified by neighborhood and custom. It might have been well for the poet himself if he had learned to smoke a social pipe with his friend Bull. The appreciative lines run thus. This oval box well filled, with best tobacco, finely milled, beats all Antichira's pretenses to disengage the encumbered senses. O nymph of transatlantic fame, where'er thine haunt, whate'er thy name, whether reposing on the side of Orinoco's spacious tide, or listening with delight not small to Niagara's distant fall, tis thine to cherish and to feed the pungent nose-refreshing weed, which, whether pulverized it gain a speedy passage to the brain, or whether touched with fire it rise in circling eddies to the skies, does thought more quicken and refine than all the breath of all the nine. Forgive the bard, if bard he be, who once too wantonly made free to touch with a satiric wipe that symbol of thy power the pipe. And so may smoke-inhaling bulb be always filling, never full. The allusion in these verses to a satiric wipe refers to a passage in the poem entitled Conversation, which Cowper had written the previous year, 1781. 
in this passage tobacco is abused in terms which cowper clearly felt to need modification after his personal intercourse with such a smoker as his friend bull in describing in conversation the manner in which a story is sometimes told the poet says the pipe with solemn interposing puff makes half a sentence at a time enough the dozing sages drop the drowsy strain then pause and puff and speak and pause again such often like the tube they so admire important triflers have more smoke than fire cowper then goes on to attack tobacco in lines which show how unpopular smoking at that date was with the ladies and which have since often been quoted by anti-tobacconists with grateful appreciation pernicious weed whose scent the fair annoys unfriendly to society's chief joys thy worst effect is banishing for hours the sex whose presence civilizes ours thou art indeed the drug a gardener wants to poison vermin that infest his plants but are we so to wit and beauty blind as to despise the glory of our kind and show the softest minds and fairest forms as little mercy as the grubs and worms notwithstanding this satiric swipe it is not likely that cowper would have had much sympathy with john wesley who in his detestation of what had been his father's solace at epworth forbade his preachers either to smoke or to take snuff in the first two or three decades of the nineteenth century smoking reached its nadir no dandy smoked if some witnesses may be believed smoking had almost died out even at oxford archdeacon Denison wrote in his memories when i went up to oxford eighteen twenty three to twenty four there were two things unknown in christ church and i believe very generally in oxford smoking and slang but one cannot help fancying that the archdeacon's memory was not quite trustworthy it is difficult to imagine that there was ever a time when the slang of the day was not current on the lips of young oxford or that so long as tobacco was procurable it did not find its way into college rooms if smoking had died out at oxford its decline must have been rapid when a certain young john james was an undergraduate of queens seventeen seventy eight to seventeen eighty one he and his correspondents spoke severely of the miserable condition of fellows who under the liberal pretense of educating youth spent half their lives in smoking tobacco and reading the newspapers about eighteen hundred the older or more old-fashioned of the fellows at new college not liking the then newly introduced luxury of turkey carpets says mr g v cox in his recollections of oxford eighteen sixty eight often adjourned to smoke their pipe in a little room opposite to the senior common room now appropriated to other uses but then kept as a smoking-room a mr rhodes a one-time fellow of worcester college who was elected esquire bedell in medicine and arts in seventeen ninety two had a very peculiar way of enjoying his tobacco mr cox says on one occasion when i had to call upon him i found him drinking rum and water and enjoying what he called his luxury the fumes of tobacco not through a pipe or in the shape of a cigar but burnt in a dish smoking had certainly not died out at cambridge even at the time when denison was at oxford according to the gradus ad cantabrigium eighteen twenty four the cambridge smart man's habit was to dine in the evening at his own rooms or at those of a friend and afterward blows a cloud puffs at a cigar and drinks copiously the spelling of cigar shows that cigars were then somewhat of a novelty when tennyson was an undergraduate at cambridge eighteen twenty eight to eighteen thirty 
he and his companions all smoked at the meetings of the apostles the little group of friends which included the future laureate much coffee was drunk much tobacco smoked dons smoked as well as undergraduates at queen's the combination room in tennyson's time had still a sanded floor and the table was set handsomely forth with long churchwardens as the poet told palgrave when the two visited cambridge in eighteen fifty nine george prime in his autobiographic recollections eighteen seventy states that in eighteen hundred smoking was allowed in the trinity combination room after supper in the twelve days of christmas when a few old men availed themselves of it which looks as if tobacco were not very popular just then at trinity with the wine pipes and the large silver tobacco box were laid on the table porson when asked for an inscription for the box suggested greek to bakcho prime says that among the undergraduates of whom he was one tobacco had no favor and an attempt of mr ginkell son of lord elthone to introduce smoking at his own wine parties failed although he had the prestige of being a hat fellow commoner no doubt smoking had its ups and downs at the universities apart from the set of the main current of fashion we learn from the invaluable gunning that at cambridge about seventeen eighty six smoking was going out of fashion among the junior members of our combination rooms except on the river in the evening when every man put a short pipe in his mouth i took great pains he adds to make myself master of this elegant accomplishment but i never succeeded though i used to renew the attempt with a perseverance worthy of a better cause about the same time dr farmer was master of emmanuel and the master was an inveterate smoker gunning says that emmanuel parlor under farmer's presidency was always open to those who loved pipes and tobacco and cheerful conversation a very natural collocation of tastes farmer's silver tobacco pipe is still preserved in his old college while porson's japanned snuff-box is at trinity dr farmer was elected master of emmanuel in seventeen seventy five years before he had held the curacy of suavesy about nine miles out of cambridge where he regularly performed the duty after morning service it was his custom to repair to the local public-house where he enjoyed a mutton-chop and potatoes immediately after the removal of the cloth mr dobson his churchwarden and one or two of the principal farmers made their appearance to whom he invariably said i am going to read prayers but shall be back by the time you have made the punch occasionally another farmer accompanied him from church when pipes and tobacco with the punch were in requisition till six o'clock the sabbath afternoon thus satisfactorily concluded farmer returned to college in cambridge and took a nap till at nine he went to the parlor of the college where the fellows usually assembled and pipes and tobacco concluded a well-spent day in the fashionable world the snuff-box was all-powerful the prince regent was devoted to snuff but disdained tobacco he had a cellar of snuff which after his death was sold said john bull august fifteenth eighteen thirty to a well-known purveyor for four hundred pounds lord petersham famous among dandies made a wonderful collection of snuffs and snuff-boxes, and was curious in his choice of a box to carry. Grono relates that once when a light sevray snuff-box, which Lord Petersham was using, was admired, the noble owner replied with a gentle lisp, Yes, it is a nice summer-box, but would certainly be inappropriate for winter wear. The well-known purveyor who bought the Prince Regent's cellar of snuff, and who bought also Lord Petersham's stock, 
was the Freiburg of Freiburg and Treyer, whose well-known old-fashioned shop at the stop of the haymarket, with the bow window on each side of the door, still gives an eighteenth-century flavor to that thoroughfare. All the dandies of the period were connoisseurs of snuff, and imitated the royal mirror of fashion in their devotion to the scented powder. Young Charles Stanhope wrote to his brother on November 5, 1812, I have learned to take snuff among other fashionable acquirements, a custom which, of course, you have learned, and will be able to keep me in countenance. But no dandies or young men of fashion smoked. Tobacco, save in the disguise of snuff, was tabooed. Smoking was frowned upon even in places where hitherto it had been allowed. In 1812 the authorities of Sion College ordered that coffee and tea be provided in the parlor for the visitors and incumbents, and in the court-room for the curates and lecturers, and that pipes and tobacco be not allowed, and that no wine be at any time carried into the court-room, nor any into the hall after coffee and tea shall have been ordered on that day. The use of tobacco for smoking, as I have said, had reached its nadir, in the fashionable world, that is to say. But the dawn follows the darkest hour, and the revival of smoking was at hand, thanks to the cigar. End of chapter 8